Hi, everybody. My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. It's uh, by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've not found a need or an excuse to take a drink today, nor have I found a need or an excuse to take a drink since May 28th of 1973, and for that I am truly grateful. Um... I, I cannot tell you how impressed I am to see the sobriety sitting in the front of this room. I have never been in one place at any convention where there are this many people with over 40 years of sobriety all in the same place at the same time. For those of you that don't know, or those of you that are new, this represents an absolute treasure in Alcoholics Anonymous. So use these guys and these ladies, because they are people who have continuously stayed sober for decades using the principles of this program. Um, I'd like to thank... uh, uh, that this committee that that handles this function for inviting me. This is a sort of a special weekend too because my wife rarely travels with me to these conventions. And she's come along with me this weekend, which is a special treat, and we got to meet Bonnie and Dave and Rick who have been sort of squiring us around town and showing us Cincinnati and we've had a great time since we've been here. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to tell you a story about a real person. Uh, it's about a guy who lived in eastern Illinois, down on the Mississippi River. He lived down in Savannah, Illinois. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's an old railroad town down there. He, he was a chronic alcoholic. He, uh, He'd been married nine times. He uh, he was living in a shack. Um, he he hung around. I went down to look at it. He hung around in this old bar down by the riverfront. When you walked in that bar, all you could smell was uh, old sort of cheap wine, where somebody'd been throwing up. And you never knew what had happened in that bar. It stunk. Um, and about 15 or 16 years ago, he had a stroke. And they really didn't know what to do with him. They took him over to Clinton, Iowa, and stuck him in a kind of a half-hospital type place. And he was so agitated all the time that he couldn't, they couldn't really take care of him. Didn't have much family, had a brother that was living up in Wisconsin. He had a couple of kids. He had a son and a daughter, but he hadn't seen them maybe probably for 20 years or so. They found out that they could take him back to Wisconsin, put him in a veteran's home, and that the state would pay for his care, so they moved him up there. And in the 15 years that he stayed in this veteran's home, none of those ex-wives ever came to see him. Uh, The stroke put him in a wheelchair, 
And so he lost his power to speak. He lost his power to get around. Um, and he was visited occasionally by his son and daughter, or daughter, maybe once every year or two. About a year and a half ago, because he had been in this wheelchair for so long, his extremities started to lose circulation. And the doctor went to his brother, who was about 82 years old, and they said, well, uh, we're probably going to have to amputate that one foot because otherwise he's going to get gangrene. And so his brother said, well, go ahead and amputate it, and they did. And not too long after they amputated it, the extremity that was left started turning black. And they said, well, uh, we're probably going to have to take his leg off to the knee because otherwise he'll just get gangrene. And there's a problem with this, and that is that this thing is marching up his body. And eventually we're going to run out of parts to cut off. So maybe we ought to just let him die. And it was his brother's opinion that they ought to let him die. Well, you see, the guy in the hospital knew that. He knew they were going to let him die. He also knew that none of those people that he had been married to or that he had known would come to see him. He couldn't talk about it. He couldn't stop dying. Then it makes you think about the four horsemen alcoholism. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And especially despair. Because he was dying and he couldn't do anything. And he couldn't talk about it. And what he would do is he would, when someone would come close to him, he would scream. He would just scream. Uh, in the middle of January, he died. He lived like a drunk. He died like a drunk. He was my father. And the reason why I tell you that is because people in my family have been dying like that for generations. I don't know if my uh I don't know if my dad ever found Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know whether he saw it, whether it was ever whether it was ever offered to him. I just know he never took it. I know that there has been generation upon generation upon generation of my family who have died exactly like that. Alone, afraid, bewildered. And I don't have to do that. I want to talk to you about no hope. Because I know there are some of you here who have, who have not been sober very long. Who have lived a life of no hope. I'm not going to tell you drunk stories. You know, I think almost everybody in this, in this room 
knows how to get drunk. And I don't, I didn't fly all the way out here from Denver to talk to you about funny drunk stories. I came all the way out here to talk to you about recovery. And that's my intent in coming here today. So if you came here to hear a real snappy speaker with a lot of jokes, I am really sorry. <laughs> Sometime, I think it was May 28th of 1973, but I'm not absolutely certain. Sometime around there, I'd been in a blackout for about four or five days. I had been drinking continuously for about the previous 15 years, usually a bottle of booze a day. Um, I was not a periodic drunk. I didn't ever stop. I drank every day. I drank until I was either asleep or passed out. Um, I didn't know how to stop. I had no hope. I was afraid to die. And somewhere around May 28th of 1973, I wound up on the floor of an empty house in a little town called Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I had been going to Alcoholics Anonymous from about 1968. And I couldn't get it together. I'd go to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd walk in, I'd be half drunk or looped on pills or do something. And I would walk into that room and people would pat me on the back and they would say, it's going to be all right, just keep coming back. And I would drink on the way home. I knew the answer was here. I just never got clear enough to get a hold of it. In May of 1973, two people from Alcoholics Anonymous came and made a 12-step call on me in an empty house in Wisconsin, and I was more dead than alive. I had been drinking for years, but drinking especially heavily for about the last two or three weeks. I had been in a blackout for three or four days. I had somehow taken a whole bottle of tranquilizers the last night I had drank, trying to get a little weller. Uh, and uh, and I was damn near dead. And they came in and pumped me full of orange juice and honey and all those things that they used to do to people when they were trying to get them sober. And they took me to a halfway house in that town and sat me down in front of a priest. And he asked me a question. He said, are you an alcoholic? Now, I had been drinking a fifth a day for 15 years. And I'm not sure that ever really occurred to me with that kind of impact before. And I knew I was an alcoholic, and I knew I was out of gas, and I knew I had nowhere to go and nothing to do and nobody to talk to. And I said, yeah, I am an alcoholic. And he said, well, if you want what we have, then you're going to have to do some things. Are you willing to do that? And I said, I'm willing to do anything. I was not afraid I wasn't going to get sober. I was afraid I was going to die. And all I wanted to do was to get through that day. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Nothing ever worked for me. The book says we had to concede to our innermost selves that we're alcoholics. That's the first step in recovery. 
the delusion that we're like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. I am not like other people. You know, when I drink, I do something stupid or crazy or bizarre or hurtful, and I do it to the people who are right next to me. I do it to the people I love. I just don't act like other people. You know, I may be perfectly normal. But you put a drink in me and I am a raving lunatic. I cannot stop. I will drink in spite of anything. It's kind of an interesting procedure. You know, we're, um, we're kind of a fundamentalist AA group in, uh, Denver. And we really believe in doing the work. We really believe that this is a spiritual program. And that God has everything to do with this. And that practicing the steps is the road to recovery. Um, let me share some. The worst, when I drank, I drank without hope. I mentioned that. But I used to sit there and think about it. You know, drinking was the only, I knew I was attached. And that I was never going to get cut loose. And that the rest of my life was going to be just like that was. That it was a pile of dog manure, and it was never going to get any better. And I used to sit there and think about who I wanted to be, and alcohol would help me do that. And I would sit there and I would say, well, I'd like to, I'd like to be married and live in this nice house. Uh, I'd like to be married to this pretty woman I was really, I'm really in love with. I'd like to have a couple of boys that I could go hunting and fishing with. I mean, I never experienced that. Um, I come from this family that just blew up when I was an infant. And I, it, this was a fairy tale for me. I'd like to own my own company. I'd like to be the president of a company. Uh, I'd like this big house that's nice and clean. And I'd like to have some fruit trees in the backyard. And I'd like to have a boat. You know, when I was a kid, I used to sit around the lakes and the rivers in Wisconsin and watch people going back and forth in their boats. And I always thought, God, if I ever grow up and I have any money, I'm going to have something like that. And I'd like a sports car. I want a Corvette. <laughs> and I couldn't have it. There's no way for me to have that. You know, I knew I was going into a gutter. And that the only way that I could ever really make sense out of that was to have another drink. It was the only way I could ever get there. And then I couldn't even stay there very long. Because I knew it was a lie. When I go through the work today, because I, yeah, I'm one of those people who goes back to step one and go through step 12, and I do it on a regular basis. And see, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I looked at the first step, there was no doubt in my mind I was an alcoholic. My God, they just dragged me into a halfway house, and I was more dead than alive. And I'd been drinking a fifth a day for years. I mean, it was pretty clear to me that alcohol was my problem at that point in time. But how about today with 17 years of sobriety? Do I still think I'm an alcoholic? 
See, when I go back through the work, I have to ask myself those questions, and there's some good parameters in that book about whether I'm an alcoholic or not, and here's a couple of them. If when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely. Was I ever able to quit entirely on my own steam? No way. Or if when you want to, you find you can't control the amount you take. Was I ever able to go out on a regular basis and take two drinks and go home, kiss my wife, pat my sons on the head, uh, do a little work at home at night for my business, and go to bed at a reasonable hour? I don't even know what that is. Was I ever able to do that? Is there anything in my recollection that tells me that I can pull that off? Uh-uh. I never did that. It talks about social drinkers. I really don't understand that. I've got sons that are social drinkers. I just, they drink half a beer and they leave it sit there. I stare at it. Aren't you going to finish that beer? No. talks about a certain kind of heavy drinker. says, well, this is a heavy drinker. He can go out and these things will happen to him. He may wind up in a hospital. He can get in accidents. He can have relationships that fall apart. Uh, he may get arrested for DUI. But if he has a sufficient reason, that's the advice of a doctor, a threat from a loved one, if he has sufficient reason, he can stop of his own will. Maybe I'm a heavy drinker. Well, let me tell you about that. My wife would come up to me and say, Bob, we're out of food. Can you just give me a few bucks to get something to eat? I'm sorry. Bob, Tommy's going to school this year and he doesn't have any clothes to wear. And we've got to buy him some clothes to go to kindergarten. It's just two bottles of booze. I just can't do it. I got a drink. I cannot do that. No, I'm not a jerk. I just can't stop drinking. My intent's not to deprive my wife or my children. I just can't stop drinking. I don't know how to do that. I know I'm going to die. I was living in Minnesota, running a container plant. And I really felt bad. I mean, I've been drinking a fifth a day for a long time. Started taking a bunch of tranquilizers so I wouldn't go into DTs in the morning. And I went to this doctor and he said, you got a liver like a football. Do you drink a lot? And I said, no. Uh, well, I don't know what you're doing, but if you continue to do it, your chances of a heart attack or a stroke are 80% in the next four years. Your blood cholesterol level is over 400. Oh. My mind is going, this is a jerk. 
He doesn't know what he's doing. He's some quack over here masquerading as a doctor. I think I'll go somewhere else. So I went over to another place in Minneapolis, went to another doctor that I didn't know, and he gave me a physical, and I came back for the results, and he said, you have an enlarged liver. And I went, okay. He said, you drink a lot? No. Um, well, I don't know what you're doing then, but if you keep doing it, your chances of a heart attack or a stroke are 80% in the next four years. These guys must know each other. I thought they were lying to me. Drunks are paranoid. You know that, that both of those doctors told me I would die in four years. Five and a half years later, I quit drinking for an entirely different reason. You cannot scare a drunk into recovery. Doesn't work. You say, you're going to die. Right. What's that got to do with it? I knew I was going to die. One of the worst things that happened to me was that at seven or eight years of sobriety, I found out that I might live another 30 years. Then I had to go about changing my whole damn life around. Because I wasn't going to live like that anymore. Is there anything in my recollection, is there anything in my experience that leads me to believe that somehow as an act of the will, I can start and stop drinking anytime I want? No. No, I can't do it. I am a real alcoholic. I will never do that, and I know it. I don't want to do that. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual adventure. So help me God. This is the most amazing 17 years of my life. This is, this is an adventure of which the kind of proportions I had never and have never experienced. And that's what I'm here to tell you about. I am an alcoholic. I got over, I was about a year sober. And I was, uh, I had sobered up in this little town in Fond du Lac. And, and I had gotten my feet underneath me, but I didn't, I didn't know what was going on here. I thought AA was kind of a lottery. I, did, I watched people coming down drunk. And I would go, why did he get drunk? I don't know. What do you think happened there? I don't know. What do you want to drink? You want to drink more than he wanted to stay sober, I guess. So this guy would go out and take a drink, and I'd watch kind of catch people. And I was trying to figure out what the difference was. And I, you know, I was afraid my number was going to come up, and I didn't want it to come up. Because I can't stand one more day of that kind of living. And I had moved out to Denver, and I was sitting there in a in a Sunday night meeting at York Street, which is a dead ringer for Oak Street here. And I'm just sort of bored and watching this speaker, like many of you are, and saying, wonder what the hell he's got to say. And he's sitting up there, and he's going, there's a real way to recover here. This is not some kind of joke. This is about 12 steps. These are spiritual exercises, and if you practice them, they work for everybody. They work for everybody. 
if you're an alcoholic, we have a solution for you, and this will work. And this isn't something that you agree with, that you put on the wall of an AA room. This is something that really takes work. This is something that has this whole set of things that you have to do, and if you do them, you don't ever have to drink again. And I'm, boy, I'll tell you, my ears perked up, and I thought, my God, there is something to do. This isn't hanging around waiting for your number to come up. And I went up to this guy after the meeting. This is right about six months before the 75 International. And I went up there and I said, I'm real interested in what you have to say because I think I'm going to drink again. I'm a year sober and I'm scared to death. And he said, well, I'll show you how to do that. Come on over to my house. And so I used to go over to his house one or two nights a week and sit across his kitchen table from him. And we would read out of the big book. And we started at the forward to the first edition where it says to show others precisely how we have recovered is the purpose of this book. And he said, now, I don't know about you, but that gave me a lot of hope. Because this says show others precisely how to recover, not show others how you might under the right circumstances recover. This says, I can show you precisely how to recover from alcoholism. And that's what he did. And we went through the, four, the first step and went through this whole exercise about what are you really? Are you willing to consider that you're not an alcoholic? Maybe you're a heavy drinker. Let's find out. And I did that. And then, boy, I came up aces all over. There was no doubt in anybody's mind. And when we got to the second step, it was kind of interesting because he was talking and he said, now take a look at this. He said, if you're even willing to believe upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. That's what the book says. If you're even willing to believe. You know, if you think there might be a God, maybe, under the right circumstances, it's enough. You know that book's called We Agnostics? It's not called They Agnostics? Okay? We are. Agnostics are people who think there might be a God, but it doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with them. I was hoping it didn't have a lot to do with me. Um, he showed me a part in that book that I just love. It says this, Crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God either is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. What's your decision to be? What's my self-imposed crisis? My self-imposed crisis is not only that I'm alcoholic, it's that I can't stop. My crisis is that I'm dying and I don't know how to quit dying. I can't postpone it. You know, I can't say, excuse me, I'm going to Cincinnati for the weekend. Uh, just give me like six days off because this alcoholism is killing me and let me regain my health a little bit and then I'll come back and take it back I can't evade it I, I can't say uh, if I make a real quick right turn I'll lose it there's no way for me to walk away from my alcoholism I am my alcoholism When I was uh, 
when I was sober 90 days, I I had to sit on my hands. I sweated so bad I'd turn I just turn a shirt completely wet. I couldn't say anything. I would just sort of jabber. Um, and and in the old line meeting in Fond du Lac, they uh, they had to get a new chairman, and you had to chair the meeting for 90 days, and you couldn't you couldn't chair it unless you were 90 days sober, and I was like 92 days sober. And uh, and so everyone in the room had chaired it except me. And they said, well, let's get a new chairman. My sponsor stood up and said, let Bob do it. This other guy jumped up and said, wait a minute, we need to talk about that. And and I was sitting there going, what the hell is his problem? And, uh, and he's looking at me like, this guy, there's no way in hell. I mean, he's sober 90 days in America. And the idea that he's going to stay sober in the next 90 days absolutely boggles the imagination. And he said, I'm not sure this is such a great idea. And another guy jumped up and said, yeah, we better, we better have a little discussion about this. I've never seen anybody do that since then. I wouldn't do that. I mean, you want to really make somebody feel like a jerk, discuss them in front of them. my sponsor said, Bob, why don't you go outside and smoke a cigarette? And I said, okay. Went out, and I listened to him. I went outside and smoked a cigarette, hang around out there about 10 minutes. And then I came back in, and he said, you, you're going to be the chairman, Bob. You know, for the next 90 days, I didn't drink. Because I wouldn't let those son of a bitches see me drunk. This is a spiritual program. <laughs> you know, I don't understand God. Uh, I know that he does that. I know that's God. Um, and God has been present in my life in those kinds of strange ways ever since I walked in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous last time. Um... When I go back through the second step today, I look at some things that I think are really pertinent. The second step talks about two different kinds of people. It talks about people who make heavy going out of life. And you know, sometimes in sobriety, that occurs. It talks about people who are ineffective, who can't control their emotional natures, who have difficulty with relationships. It's called the bedevilment. It's on page 53. All these things that occur that make life, life difficult. And sometimes in sobriety that occurs to me. That happens to me. And I'm trying to find a place to get spiritually centered again. And the place is in the second step. Because when the, in the second step it starts talking about power. And it talks about people who, who accept God and make God the central fact in their lives. And it talks about these people over here who are ineffective and they are making heavy going out of life. And then it talks about people over here who make God the central feature in their lives. And it, and it says that those people have power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. 
And those are four things, the only four things that I truly have wanted all my life. When the book talks about power, it's kind of fun. It says lack of power is our dilemma. I never met a drunk who wasn't interested in power, so if you want to go look this stuff up, it's really kind of fun. It says, lack of power is our dilemma. Well, what do I do about that? Well, this book is about finding power, that power greater than ourselves. And it talks about making this decision about that God is or he isn't, that he is, and that he's everything, and that we're going to feel new power flowing in, and that when we make God the central fact of our life, we'll have power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. It says, it defines the power, that power which is God. even tells you what you can do with it. Back in the family afterwards, it says, it talks about people laughing at inappropriate places, which we do a lot. And it it talks about merriment. And it says, why shouldn't we? We have recovered. And we've been given the power to help others. You know, it's curious. I read that book a lot. And I see no place in that book that says I have the power to help myself. If I could help myself, I would have never come here. When my sponsor and I got to the third step, we sat down with... uh, with the book, and he said, now you're going to start learning about alcoholism. He says, here's what alcoholism is. You think it's because you keep slugging that bottle up to your mouth and you can't stop drinking. But what alcoholism really is, is selfishness and self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our problems. What you really do, he said, I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound strange. And that is that if you do something really unusual like learn how to deal with selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, that you don't ever have to slug that bottle up to your mouth again. What do you think of that? Sorry to me. Whatever works. I don't know. And he said, well, that's what we're going to start paying attention to because that's what it says the root of the problem is, is selfishness and self-centeredness. And we read all this stuff about the actor. And I was the actor. And then we got to the third step prayer. And he said, look at this prayer, because this is the central part of the third step. He says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And I'm going, okay, so it's a prayer. And he said, no, it's a deal. And I want you to think about that, and I want you to come back in a week and tell me whether you're willing to do that. And he said, here's the deal. You're going to offer yourself to God, and he can do anything with you he wants. Anything. He can kill you, leave you live, give you a disease, keep you healthy, take your family away from you, Take your job away from you. Take your health away from you. Take your life away from you. Take anything. Give you anything. Make you happy. Make you sad. It's his deal. You willing to do that? Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. My bondage of self. 
You know, it's like having a pair of glasses with reflectors in them. All I can see is me. That's all I can see. I'm so damn turned in, I can't see anything that's going on around me. That's my problem. I'm turned way in. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help as I love and power and way of life. Bearing witness means being an example. When people look at me, let them see what happened. Let them see that 17 years ago there was this sort of burned out drunk that had nowhere to go and nothing to do and nobody to do it with. And that you have changed his life. With your power and your love and your way of life, are you willing to do that? And on the end of that, it says, we thought well before taking this step, knowing that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Um, abandon's a strong word, and it's about abandoning self. And see, that scared the hell out of me. So I'm going home, and I'm trying to figure out whether I want to give God that kind of power in my life. I mean, do I really want to come in there? And he told me, he said, if you get down on your knees with me and hold hands, and say that prayer, and you honestly believe that, your life will change. That sounds kind of spooky, doesn't it? And I believed it. And I went back the next week, and he said, are you willing to do this? And I said, absolutely. And he said, okay, get on your knees and do it. And I did it. And my life changed. You're I was afraid to give God that, that kind of power. God's got all the power anyway. I mean, who the hell did I think I was? See, my biggest deal today is I get in these slugging matches with God about who's God and who's the drunk. And I just get my ass kicked. My sponsor looks at me and he said, well, good news and bad news. Um, this is a very important step that you've just taken, and it will have little permanent effect, <laughs> unless it's at once followed by a rigorous attempt to clean the house. Now, well, what are you talking about? And he said, you need to write inventory, or this is going to wear off. And I said, well, okay, how do you do that? And he said, well, it's right here in the big book. There's a... Uh, there's an example in there that you can follow. And so we did. And I wrote down a list of all the people and institutions and principles that I resented, that I had a grudge against. Because that's what I had, it was a grudge list. And I wrote down why I was mad at him, but he said, don't spend a lot of time there because it doesn't make any difference. And then when you get over there in that next column, I, wanna, I want you to write down what it affected. That affect your self-esteem, your security, your ambitions, your personal relations, your sex relations. Is there some fear in it? Affect your pocketbook. What was going on there? But you know that took me a couple of months to do that. Um, and I'm writing all this stuff down. And I came back and I said, "Hey, I'm done." And he said, "No, you're not." And I said, "What's left?" He said, "Well." You have to go back and review all that and see where you were selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened in each one of those instances. 
And so I took that whole list of grudges, and I went back and I said, okay, where was I selfish? I was selfish here, and I was dishonest here, and I was self-seeking here, and I was frightened there. And I came back and I said, well, okay, I'm ready to piss death. He said, no, you're not. Now you write a fear inventory. And I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, write down everything you're afraid of. I was a bill collector on the north side of Chicago. My stock and trade is, I have no fear. He said, what are you afraid of? And I said, you know me, I'm not afraid of anything. He said, really? Um, that isn't what the fear, that isn't what the big book says about fear inventory. It says that the fabric of our existence is shot through with that. That doesn't sound like you're drunk. Let's take a look. You afraid of snakes? What kind of snakes? How about rattlesnakes? Um, well, I wouldn't want to be in a closet with one. He said, write down rattlesnakes. How about spiders? Black widows? Yeah. Yeah. Write down black widow spiders. Okay. How about failure? Oh, cheap shot. <laughs> Well, see, I grew up with this alcoholic family, and they always told me I was like my old man, and I was just, you know, they always said you're just a, nothing but a damn bum like your father. Yeah. Well, right down failure. How about inadequacy? Um, yeah. It's, um... I didn't ever think I was good enough. Um, I just didn't think I was good enough. Well, write down inadequacy. How about women? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I was terrified of women. Really. Write down women. How about children? Well, just the real little ones. Because I'm afraid of dropping them. Write down infants. How about homosexuality? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. But it scares me. <laughs> Write down homosexuality. Is there anything you aren't afraid of? I don't think so. The book says, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Yeah. You know, if in the absence of God, do I have, do I have any real reason to be afraid of these things? Yeah. 
If I am left to my own devices, they all represent a sincere threat to me. But it's an interesting procedure to turn the question around and say, if I am standing in God's light, is there anything here that I have to be afraid of? Not a thing. You know, I don't understand God and I don't know what his deal is for me, but it's all right and I made the deal. Okay? And if he wants me back in Denver, you know, in my backyard, or he wants me here in Cincinnati standing here, it's all right with me. If I walk out the door and drop dead, or I, you know, it's his deal. And I made it, and I get to live with it. And there are some times when I don't like it. But by and large, God has given me a life that is so superior to anything that I have ever witnessed. Um, that it's damn hard to argue with. Then he said, I went back and I said, okay, so you beat me up and now I understand about fear and great. Uh, am I done now? And he said, no, there's still a sex inventory. Well, sex inventory, depending upon how you write it, is kind of a misnomer. It has more to do with relationships anyway, the way I write it, and I try and follow the directions. They asked some interesting questions about relationships. said, were they selfish or not? Am I selfish in relationships? You better believe it. Do I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Ooh. Hey, you know, I didn't see this until I wrote about four or five inventories. Let me tell you about that. Do I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Those are my stock and trades. I don't know how to have a relationship. I always thought, you know, I, I had all that wonderful self-worth that we all come into this program with. And I'm thinking, if she ever gets a good look at me, I'm out of here. If she ever finds out what a pile of dog manure I am, I mean, the door won't hit her in the tail going, she's going to be out of here quicker than I can blank. Now, how do I keep her from seeing who I really am? Keep her off balance. Right? This is really good, solid, alcoholic thinking. How about a little jealousy? That'll keep her off balance. Hi, honey. Where you been? Out. Who you been out with? Well, we got a new secretary. I had to just train her late. Till nine o'clock. Yeah, well, we had dinner afterwards, but it's nothing. It's just work. Oh. How about suspicion? Oh, where were you this evening? Uh, with some friends. It's nothing. Good night. Uh, how'd you get lipstick on your collar? One of them was a lady. <laughs> uh, we, well, we, we danced a little. But it was all innocuous. It was just stuff. Nothing went on. Don't worry about it. Bitterness. You're a bitch. Jesus, you just make my life miserable. All you do, you don't get enough of this, you don't get enough of that. You know it's like living with you? I mean, Jesus, if I wanted to move in with Genghis Khan, it's just like, can't you straighten your act up? I mean, what the hell kind of a woman are you anyway? 
you know what I'm doing? I'm protecting my backside. I'm keeping her off balance. I don't want her to see me. How the hell is that to have? What kind of a way is that to have a relationship with somebody else? I mean, that's awful. And you know, that's all I knew. When I was eight years sober, I had gone through a divorce, eight years sober, and got back into the dating scene. And I was no better at having a relationship at eight years sober than I was when I was drinking. I hadn't learned a damn thing. And see, it's real hard when you've been sober for a while to turn around and say, I don't know this. I don't have those skills. This is a real basic skill. Okay? This is something I should have known when I was 16. And I don't have the first clue about how to have a relationship. How do I do that? I went and got some help. You know, I never have been able to conjure something out of the air. So I went to find out. And I found out that one of the first things you have to do to have a relationship is have communication. Oh, oh, bad word. You know what my idea is about relationships? Hey, hey, screw it, I'm out of here. That's the way I always had a relationship. You don't like it? Hey, I'll see ya. I don't know. I, they said, wait a minute. you got to sit down face to face and talk about it. Horse manure. I don't want to do that. That scares me. Learn how to do it. I fished up that was right on the end of that. We... It's, it's funny because uh, there's a lady here who lives in Louisville that was in that in those groups at York Street when I was getting sober, and uh, and we had a thing on the end of our inventories that we called "Take It to the Grave" stuff. Okay. Usually it had something to do with sex, and you go, "Oh God, I'd never tell anybody that." And uh, and I put that stuff on the end. And I mean, that's absolutely nothing you'd ever share with anybody. And so I put that on the end, and then I went to fist step it. Well, now I never, I'm typically alcoholic. I, I'm a loner. I don't, I think sometimes I want friends, but I really don't want to go through the trouble of creating them. Uh, and see this sponsor of mine, I'd really let him in and we'd gotten to be buddies. And now I had to go fifth step this stuff with him. And I was absolutely certain at the end of this he was going to, and especially after the take it to the grave stuff, he was going to turn around and go, you jerk. And he said, you ready to fifth step? And I said, yeah, but I'm really, I don't want, I don't want you to see me like that. And he said, well, do it or don't do it. So I did it. Seeing at the end of my fist step, my sponsor threw his arms around me and said, I truly love you. And I am so happy that you did this. And I learned something from that. I learned that I don't have to be anything special. You know, I'm just another drunk. Um, I am truly just another drunk. And that I may not be as good as I'd like to be or you'd like me to be, but I'm working on it. 
and that if I keep just hacking away at this day after day, that I will get a little better every day. And that eventually maybe I'll even get close to the person that I've always wanted to be. But during that period, most of you will accept me. And I am eternally grateful for that. And the other thing I learned is that I don't have to do anything but what you see is what you get. I don't have to be anything other than what I am today. Because I am what God made me. With a whole bunch of selfishness and dishonesty and resentment and fear thrown in that I'm trying to work on. But I am about as bad, as good as I can be today. And that's the way it is. Um, I went, my sponsor gave me, he said, okay, now you, ne- you need to go home and do six and seven. You can do it in an hour. If you just, you just follow the direction. So I, I went home and it says, taking the book down from the shelf, we reviewed the first five proposals. So I put the book up on the shelf. Took it down. I don't want to make any mistakes. And I reviewed them to see if they were sound. And then I went through six and seven. And six is just about being ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And seven is about asking him to remove them. You can get caught up in the semantics of six and seven. It's unnecessary. It's just about finding, doing all, doing something about all the stuff you found out in the fifth step. And being willing to have God remove all of that. And so I did six and seven at home and I went through the seven step prayer and I reviewed that for about an hour and then I went through the seven step prayer and then I called up my sponsor and I said, what do I do about amends? And he said, well, you already have most of them written. Now that's an interesting idea because the book says this, uh, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The next line in the book is, we did it when we took inventory. That's in the big book. And so he said, what you've done here is on your resentment list, you you have about 95% of your amends list. And if there's someone else that you owe money or you screwed around or whatever you did, uh, just add them on to the end of the list. And I said, okay. So, so I made a list of all these people. All right. I took the list and I said, what do I do with this? And I, I, I'm not really sure what some of the harm is here. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. This says you make amends to people you've harmed, not to everybody you know. So you go through that list and you write down what the specific harm was in each one of those instances with each one of those people. And if it's you owe them a specific amount of money or you screwed them over in business or you talk behind their back or whatever it is that you did, you write down specifically what you did with those people. So I went through there and I said, okay, um, here's the list. We got down to my dad and he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, what do you mean? He took off when I was an infant. Uh, he used to come around and screw up my life every once in a while. He's been, I, I never saw him sober. What the hell did I ever do to him? And he said, didn't you tell me that he used to call you on your birthdays and you'd hang up on him? And that you told him to stay the hell away from you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, if you can't see it, 
The harm is that you held him at arm's length your whole life because you didn't understand his alcoholism. And I said, yeah, but I don't have to do anything about that because he's had this stroke and he can't talk and the doctor told me he's not even capable of any kind of continuous thought. What, what good would it be to go talk to somebody that can't talk back or do anything about it or even probably understand it? And he said, that isn't what this is about. This is about cleaning off your side of the street. I don't care if he understands it or he doesn't. You go clean off your side of the street. His side of the street's his business. So you get in your car, go to Wisconsin, and talk to him. So I did. I went to the Grand Army home in King, Wisconsin. Walked in. Hadn't seen him in 20 years. And I said, is there a guy named Bob Olson here? And they said, yeah, that's him over there in a the wheelchair. And I walked up to him and I said, hello, I'm your son, Bob. And he got all excited. And I said, I need to talk to you. And I'd like to do it someplace where it's a little more private. So if you don't mind, I'll just wheel you over here into this room. And I did that. And I sat down with him, and we talked. I did what the book said. I said, I'm an alcoholic. And I am practicing a program of recovery. Part of which is to make amends to people that I have harmed. And it has become clear to me that I have harmed you by holding you away. And I did not understand about your alcoholism until it was our alcoholism. I regret having done that. And I am willing to do anything to balance the books. When I told him that I had found a way to not drink anymore, he became very happy. So under all of that damage that was done to his mind, there was someone who was sincerely happy that I did not have to experience the death that he did. When... Um, when I got sober, I owed about $14,000. That was in 1973, and it's still a lot of money, and it was even more money then. I didn't own anything. I didn't own a car, didn't own a house, didn't own zip. And so I went to my uncle, who was a banker and not an alcoholic, because I figured he knew more about money than all the drunks I knew, because they didn't have any. It's like asking a drunk for medical advice, right? Uh, or legal advice. I bet there's 20 lawyers at Oak Street, if it's anything at all. I mean, not real lawyers, of course. <laughs> if it's anything like York Street in Denver, there's every, you know, sea lawyer over there. You can go and, uh, so I went to my uncle, who was a banker. Spent 30 years in the banking industry, and I went over to him, and I, his name was Leif Olson. And I went over there, and I said, Leif, 
I got a real problem here with finances. Is there something you can do to help me? I could sure use some advice. And he said, sure I would. Let's take a look. So he looked at my, I, I had written out all the bills that I owed and all the money and the payments and everything. And I said, is there any way to make sense out of this? And he said, how did you ever get in that much trouble? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. I couldn't stop drinking. I had to buy alcohol. And I worked for a loan company, and I know how to do stuff like this to get money. And I just I, I just got myself in that far. How do I get out? And he said, well, it's relatively easy. And I went, great. He said, here's what you do. You start paying now, and you pay until it's all paid. Excuse me? I don't like those kind of answers. I hate those kind of answers. I like answers like, win the Colorado lottery. I said, what do you do? And he said, you can pay about 30% of your net income towards debt reduction if you pay attention to it. So I did. Two and a half years later, I owed $2,500. Never went anywhere. Really, that's another form of abuse to wife and children. I never took them anywhere. I just paid off debts. And... um, and they had a boat show that came to Denver, and I went just, you know, I'm so fascinated by boats, and I said, let's let's spend a couple bucks and go to that boat show. So we went over there, and we're walking around in there, and the Bassmasters had a raffle on this brand new Rebel bass boat, and I'm looking at that, and uh, and this guy had ten bucks of my money before I knew I had it out of my pocket. I mean, I honestly don't remember giving it to him. He had it. He was giving me tickets. And I'm going, this is a real jack-and-a-beanstalk deal here. What the hell am I doing? This is the dumbest thing I ever did. And I went home, and I was mad at myself for giving him money. And the next day, they called me up and told me I won the boat. Wow. I mean, that's what I always wanted. And I had two sons. And and I said, I want that damn boat. And they're going, have we got a boat? Let's go look at the boat. So we went down to Gart Brothers, which is a big sporting goods store, and we went, that's where they had it. And we went in there, and it was one of those metal flake red bass boats. God, what a beauty. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, this is just incredible. And... Uh, and the rebel bass boat guy was there, and I said, how much does this work? Well, back then, it was worth $2,400. She had this real slick little trailer with it. Oh, God. And uh, just this big old Texan walks up to me and says, you want to sell that bass boat? And I said, for how much? And he said, $2,500. Um... And my kids are going, Why are we going to take this home? Are we going to take this home? And I'm sitting there going, uh, no. And I said, um, how, how would you pay me for it? And he said, I'll meet you at the bank tomorrow morning. I'll give you cash for it. And I said, okay, uh, I'll do that. And I got my sons together and I said, we can't have this. 
because um, I need to take care of this. So, you know, maybe when we get out of debt, we can uh, we can get enough money together to go buy a bass boat. And so the guy met me the next morning, and he gave me twenty-five one hundred dollar bills, and I sent the rest of the money to my creditors, and I was out of debt. Um, I had been hanging around York Street down there telling everybody what an example of AA I truly was. I was sitting down there going, you know, I only owe about 2500 bucks left on all this money. Haven't I been done doing just a swell job? God, am I wonderful. I am truly an example of the way this program should be done. I did all this paying off of money. Gee, I did wonderful. I sure did great. I, I, I. And this big hand came out of the sky with 2500 bucks and said, Who? Left to my own devices, I can't do this. I am incapable. I'm just another dying drunk. Two years ago, I had a business that went out of business for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is because Denver had a terrible recession. And by the time I got an accountant in there who knew what he was doing, I was a quarter of a million bucks in the hole. Okay? Now, I don't, I don't want to not pay that back. And so, I tried. And three weeks ago, I earned the last $30,000. And it's in the bank, waiting negotiation on that amount. And I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, it took almost three years to pay off $14,000. And I had this business that went under, and I paid a quarter of a million bucks back in a year and a half. What the hell is going on? And he said, God's got enough money. Um, step 10 is an interesting process. You know there are directions in the book. I mean, there's the steps on the wall, and then there's directions in the book about about what you do. And... And the directions for the 10th step is this. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when you see it, ask God to remove it. Talk to someone about it. Make amends if you've harmed someone. And then resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. Now, I'll tell you the most important part of that whole deal for me, other than just following the simple directions that we learned in 4 and 9, is to resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. It's the way we get out of ourselves. You know, if you if you find yourself in selfishness or dishonesty or resentment or fear or its brother anger, and you don't want to feel that way anymore, turn your thoughts to someone you can help and you will get out of yourself. It works for me and it works for everybody. And that is a spiritual trick. It is a way to get out of ourselves by just thinking about someone else. You know, Emmett Fox says, think about God. Bill Wilson says, think about another drunk. 
Actually, he says, think about someone you can help doesn't even have to be a drunk. Eleven's about discipline. I know, unless you hit real pockets of fundamentalism in AA, most people don't do what Eleven says. It says when you get up in the morning to ask God to keep the day free from selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. We ask him for, uh, I always read this, for uh, intuitive thought or decision. He asks us to plan our day. That means when I got up this morning, before I got out of bed, I said, I went through the first part of the 11th step and I said, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to get dressed, I have a cup of coffee, we'll meet, uh, we're going to meet the people that are bringing us over here this morning, and then I'm going to come up here and I'm going to really try and stay out of self before I get up to talk and watch the, and enjoy what's going to happen because there is so much sobriety that's going to be in this room and it's, I mean, that's just terribly impressive to me. And then we're going to spend the afternoon with some, with some friends. I'm going to get on a plane tonight and I'm going to go home. When I get home, I'm going to spend some time with my family. And then I'm going to do the other part of my 11th step when I go to bed tonight. And it says, and so we plan our day. And then it says, God, please keep show me all through the day what my next step is to be. And if I have problems, please show me the solutions. Um, I pray for the people that I that I think need that. Uh, and the people I love. And then I say the third step prayer. Uh, when we go to bed at night, it says we review our day and look for these things that have been keeping us from the sunlight of the Spirit. Uh, so I review my day and I look for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear again. And if I need to make amends to someone, I plan on doing that. And I look to see if I've added more into the day than I've taken out. Did I take a selfish attitude about the whole day and just try and pull stuff from other people, or did I put something into that day? And it says I have to maintain attitudes through the day. And the attitudes are, thy will not mine be done, and I'm not running the show anymore. And those two little tricks will keep me out of more trouble than anything I can think of. This isn't my business. This is God's business. You know, my business is participating in life as vigorously as I can. This isn't about hiding in a closet. Okay? This is about getting right out there and living. This is not about hanging around an AA club all day and saying maybe I'll get a job next month. This is about getting out there and being part of life. There's a line in the book nobody pays attention to. The line is, and go on about the business of living. You bet. Get out there and find out what you're capable of. I mean, I spent half of my life sitting in a corner with a bottle of booze trying to, trying to dream up what I wanted to be and knowing I couldn't be there. And I'm not spending the rest of my life like that. I work with a lot of people. part everybody misses in the 12 steps to practice these principles in all our affairs. And that means that my spiritual life is not something I stand up here and talk about and then forget about. My spiritual life is at home. My spiritual life is at work. 
my spiritual life is everywhere I go, just like my alcoholism. I try and carry the message, and the message that I carry is that this program truly does work. Someone said that here this morning. This truly does work, and it works for everybody. If you work it, but there's no free lunch here. I mean, you go, well, I like those steps, but I'll just agree with them. But I'm not going to do anything about it. What I'll do is I'll go find some old, uh, find some A cronies and sit around and talk about all the crazy stuff going on in my life and we'll hang out together. Doesn't work for me. Works for you. You're a different kind of drunk than I am. I die with that kind of stuff. You know, and I want to find out. I think one of the most important ingredients in sobriety is spiritual curiosity. I mean, if I see somebody that wants me to work with them and I see that little spark in there about maybe there is a God, I know they're going to get well. Let me share something with you. I live in a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood. And my lawn's all trimmed. Um, and that's the house I always wanted to live in. And I live with a beautiful woman. Absolutely beautiful woman. She's right over there and she's wearing yellow and black. If any of you want to take a look at her. And I am just wildly in love with her. I have three sons. 27, 22, and 2. Oh, you think it falls off when you're 50? Anna, I'm not the president of a company. I'm the chief executive officer. The president works for me. And I own it. I drive a Corvette. You know, none of that stuff makes any difference. I didn't ask for that. You know, I always wanted that, but I didn't, I don't go to bed at night saying, God, give me a Corvette. I say, God, please help me to be an instrument of thy will. And God just gives me that stuff. But he only gives it to me when I can handle it. You know, I have to get well enough get God's gifts. Because if he gave me some of that stuff 17 years ago, would it kill me? So he goes, okay, Bob, you're old enough to have this now. And then he will give me something that I have always wanted. And what I've always really wanted was power, God's power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. Thanks.